With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to the Anfield Index Pro Mindfield Podcast, your sports psychology podcast talking all things the mind and football. This is one of our special podcasts for myself and Dr. Andrew Vincent are joined by a special guest. Um, Andrew, before we introduce our guest, how are you doing today? Good. We got another Ethics and World Cup podcast. I'm looking forward to that and, you know, trying to make sense of whether or not it's morally okay for us to watch the World Cup. Absolutely. We were left after our last ethics podcast just feeling like we weren't quite hitting the mark or that there was a there was a, a gap in what we should be thinking about as, as fans. And that gave us the opportunity to reach out to the wonderful Rasha Yunus, senior researcher with LGBT rights in the Middle East and North Africa. Thank you so much for joining us, Rasha. How are you doing today? Thank you, Alan. I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm really looking forward to getting into this conversation. Um, I think it's it's going to help frame a lot of the some of the issues that maybe people aren't aware of going on in Qatar and, and the Middle East, and but also worldwide, and how we as sports fans, but also as human beings, probably have to be a bit more aware of what's going on and how us just watching football in inverted commas actually plays an impact in people being mistreated or not getting equal treatment throughout the world. So I suppose, do you want to just give us a little bit of a background on yourself before we delve into it? I work as a researcher at Human Rights Watch. I cover um, LGBT rights in the Middle East and North Africa region, including Qatar. So my work revolves around documenting abuses against LGBT people and conducting advocacy to remedy these abuses. Yeah, fantastic. And I'm, I know before we went live, I was asking, you know, you said you've been in the role for about five years or so. And I was asking, has there been any major changes in the region that you've noticed? And I suppose it, it it's not what most of us would have hoped really in terms of regime change and, and, and actual fairness and equality for people, um, in the LGBT community. Um, and, I suppose looking at Qatar, so a lot of the conversation has been around, say, migrant workers and those who've been killed while building stadiums. Um, a lot of the conversation then, <clears throat> excuse me, moves on to looking at how people in the LGBT community, but also 
people from other religious backgrounds, people from women are not given that equal standing in society that maybe in other parts of the, on the of the world they would have. But I suppose from your research into the into the area and and in specific specifically in Qatar, what are some of the 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 ways that the LGBT community have been treated that maybe some people wouldn't be aware of and 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 anything else that you think is important for people to know about? It's important to start with how the climate of repression in Qatar affects all vulnerable groups in different ways. Even within uh, LGBT communities, there are people who are more affected than others with censorship laws, with laws criminalizing same-sex relationships with up to seven years imprisonment, with the complete clampdown on the rights to free expression, assembly, and association. It is important to note that there is no civil society in Qatar. We cannot point to activism taking place on the ground publicly because of the fear of persecution that people, including vulnerable groups, feel inside the country. When it comes to the treatment of LGBT people, we have documented how preventive department security forces have arbitrarily arrested and detained LGBT people based solely on their gender expression and appearance in public. The most targeted have been transgender women who, for wearing makeup or wearing feminine clothing, are stopped by security forces, arbitrarily arrested, taken into an underground facility in Doha and Adefna, subjected to severe beatings and sexual harassment in police custody, and then not given any record of ever having been detained. So their detention is completely arbitrary. They were made to sign pledges that they will quote-unquote cease immoral activity as a condition for their release. And transgender women were referred to conversion practices at government-sponsored behavioral health care centers as a condition for their release as well. One of the transgender women said that the psychologist she goes to on a weekly basis told her that she would make her a man again. Wow. That's quite severe, uh, you know, and, and not something that really hits the news in in Europe or in America, uh, you know, and probably doesn't get enough exposure. Um, and I suppose in terms of the, the, the laws around you know, being transgender. Is there anything that is discriminatory in, 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 in legal, in a legal framework, or is this done at a level that is below the actual stated um, legality? It is interesting and alarming that none of the people I have interviewed on their experiences have reported receiving records of being detained or being charged with a crime on any legal basis. So their detention is completely up to the whims of security forces. It is not uh, documented or prosecuted. They are not refer referred to a court of law. They are not given a police report. So their detention has no legal basis. However, Qatar enshrines in its own national laws um, the criminalization of extramarital sex, including same-sex relations, with up to seven years imprisonment as well as another provision, Article 296, which states that any male who entices or instigates another male to commit an act of quote-unquote sodomy would be imprisoned for one to three years. And these laws, while they are not invoked in the cases that we have documented, remain on the books and create a climate of criminalization that allows private individuals and security forces to get away with crimes and abuses against LGBT people with complete impunity. So would it be fair to say like this is in Qatar, there's a organized and state sponsored program of just abusing LGBTQ people? Yes, it is fair to say that these abuses have been taking place for many years. They are not recent. They are not linked to the World Cup. They will likely continue to take place after the World Cup. 
after we published a report on security forces abuses against LGBT people, I again interviewed another transgender woman who was detained until literally two days ago and was just released. So the abuses continue despite the international pressure and it is unlikely that they will stop being perpetrated, perpetrated against LGBT residents of Qatar. While authorities may maintain a good image and uh, try to save their reputation during the World Cup by not attacking visitors and fans, the same assurances are not extended to LGBT residents of Qatar. Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. That was one of the, the questions that I had next was, you know, one of the arguments that was made sort of on the our last podcast about the ethics of the World Cup is that like the in- increased scrutiny and increased attention brings a chance for, for change. Um, to what extent do you think that's actually a reasonable argument? And to what extent do you think that's just something that helps people feel better in the short term while nothing changes in the long term? Increased scrutiny is very important. It's important to highlight these abuses, which have been completely silenced over the past decade or so. Even when FIFA awarded Qatar the World Cup in 2010, it knew that Qatar represses um, the expression and rights of LGBT people, while FIFA itself has statutes that ban discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. They have not extended those policies to the World Cup or to pressure the Qatari authorities to change their laws. So while the World Cup and this international attention could have been an opportunity over the past decade to really push for long-term reform, the Qatari authorities have failed to maintain any protections for LGBT rights, and FIFA has failed to use its leverage to push for the rights of LGBT people inside the country. So increased scrutiny is really important, but the reality of World Cup-related attention is that there hasn't really been any sort of scrutiny that would make any sort of change. And there's been no pressure to make any sort of real change either. No. And definitely in the last podcast, there was conversations around how FIFA have now introduced new, I can't remember what the phrase was, but I know in British or in in the English football, they call it, you know, fit and proper, um, you, you know, uh, ownership and how you have to prove that you are a worthy owner and that you can justify it. And, and, and apparently FIFA are now bringing that in for any future World Cups that you have to prove that you are ethical and you are, you know, a country of, of, of a good moral standing and, and all that kind of stuff. And they're, they're bringing this out all while they know thousands and thousands of people have died. Thousands and thousands of people are being abused. Thousands and thousands of people are being held illegally, you know, in, in terms of international law, you know, uh, based on their gender representation, their sexual orientation, their, you know, uh, like so many different things. And I'm, I'm curious, what do you think we as people living in Europe and North America and should be or could be doing to really put pressure to to use this you know um opportunity in inverted commas to 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 show the Qatari government that this needs to change that this regime needs to change it's interesting that you bring up FIFA's requirements on hosting the world cup because 
Uh, you know, FIFA has failed to do effective due diligence according to its own human rights obligations um, in Russia, in Qatar, and now Saudi Arabia is bidding for the World Cup in 2030. So this is just another example of how you know, oil-rich countries and countries with resources can claim these mega-sporting events or, um, you know, fight for them while FIFA has not prioritized human rights um, and the record of these countries for their human rights abuses as a condition for allowing them to host a mega-sporting event. The concerns that have arisen from Qatar hosting the World Cup have been primarily around the rights and protections for fans and visitors. And Qatari authorities have responded to say, you know, they assure prospective visitors that they will be free to express themselves and fly the rainbow flag. But it begs the question at the time, and it still begs the question, what about the rights and existence of LGBT residents of Qatar? Suggestions that Qatar should make an exception for outsiders are implicit reminders that Qatari authorities do not believe its LGBT residents deserve basic rights or exist for that matter. And that is the concerning part. You know, the study reference to quote-unquote culture as the deterrent for, for accepting LGBT people's rights in the country is a cheap excuse for Qatari authorities to claim that the Qatari people are the deterrent uh, for accepting LGBT rights as though there are no LGBT people who are Qatari or inside Qatar. It also erases the lived realities of LGBT residents of Qatar who face abusive state practices, who face legislation that criminalizes their existence. So this complete denial of LGBT rights within the country is something that Qatari authorities have maintained and FIFA has not called out. And what is important for the international community uh, invested fans, players, um, you know, wherever they reside, is to prioritize in their solidarity the existence and the rights of LGBT residents of Qatar who are most affected by everything that will happen during the World Cup and will face repercussions after the World Cup for anything that will take place. So anything that is an effort of solidarity needs to be in consultation with people who are most affected. It needs to be strategic and productive. It needs to be maintained uh, and have longevity beyond the World Cup after the international fans have gone, after the spotlight has been removed from uh, Qatar, so that Qatari authorities know that people are not only concerned for outsiders, they, are con they continue to be concerned for those most affected inside the country. Yeah, and I, I know for me, that, that that has always been one of the big concerns that I have, is that, unfortunately, what I would suspect will happen is that there may be some sort of protest that might get some sort of coverage during the World Cup. And people will still watch the World Cup and then after the World Cup is over people just forget about it and as you said those living in this reality will just either just go back to their normal way of being which is persecutory or nearly be doubled down on because they've the, the authorities have had to be so constrained during the hosting of the World Cup um, and afterwards it's like well now we're going to get you because we had to do nothing and you were walking around expressing your gender expressing your sexuality and we couldn't do anything about it but now we can and would that be a general fear do you think that is on the ground? I think LGBT residents of Qatar are smart enough to realize this double standard and to realize the hypocrisy of the Qatari authorities when they say everyone is welcome, they know that this does not apply to them. I would be surprised if LGBT residents of Qatar host any protests or express themselves freely during the World Cup because they know better. They know they would face repercussions after the fact. However, the, the concern remains that if 
people were to get excited and, you know, express their alliance even with LGBT people and their rights inside the country, they will leave a record that could be used to persecute them after the World Cup is over. In ways that we may not have access to, there could be further clampdowns and silencing of LGBT residents of Qatar. While this is the responsibility of the Qatari authorities to make sure it doesn't happen, it is also something that could take place online. There could be posts that um, people would be held accountable for, including any affirmative support for LGBT rights. If a Qatari resident raises a rainbow flag during the games, they could be persecuted by the authorities for doing just that after the games are over. So while it is unlikely that Qatari residents themselves will host these kinds of protests, because that's not a luxury afforded to them, in fact, their rights to free assembly and association are completely prohibited in the country, hence why there's no civil society in Qatar, it remains important to keep monitoring the backlash, if any, against LGBT residents after the World Cup is over, and that's what I plan on doing, and that's what I also encourage uh, concerned parties and allies to do as well. So before, Rasha, you had mentioned how, like, any like activism or like kind of efforts made in relation to the world cup, like that are efforts of solidarity and alliance, like should be made in consultation with Qatari LGBTQ groups and making sure that there's lasting change. And so, you know, not knowing all of the efforts that are going on in terms of what different organizations are doing, but you know, something like, um, wearing a rainbow armband or rainbow laces or blacking out your shirt or, you know, whatever. Do those seem like the kinds of efforts that you're talking about or are those kinds of things that maybe um, look nice for the team doing it but don't provide any sort of real benefit to Qatari LGBTQ citizens? It's, it's paying lip service to an issue that is so systematic and it's a symbolic gesture that could work or help highlight the issues and the protests of these abuses. However, it cannot stay there, it cannot remain there. I would encourage people to take hormone replacement therapy for transgender Qataris who do not have access to hormone replacement therapy in the country. I would encourage them to ask what are your health needs and how can we provide them if we are present in the country at the time. I would encourage them to hire LGBT Qataris in uh, companies and um, initiatives that would allow them to secure employment. Those kinds of efforts are the efforts that go a long way to really prioritize um, the absence of state services and neglect of LGBT residents of Qatar, which could be provided by outsiders or concerned organizations or actors. Another question I have. Another question I have that, like, I don't. It's not quite fully formulated in my head. But like, one of the things, like, when Al had previously asked about, um, you know, the changes you've seen in the region over the past five years, and you talked about there being in places like a greater climate of activism that can kind of take root, and it seems like what you're describing too is that, just, like, that's just not possible in Qatar. Yeah. Um, like, is I mean, there anything? That you... mm-hmm. Wherever there's oppression, there's resistance anywhere around the world, uh, whether it be informal, underground, public, cloud, um, or really part and parcel of people's demands and any um, effort to challenge a governing system or an oppressive system. Um, however, the clampdown and complete restriction on civil society in Qatar makes it that organizations cannot register as LGBT rights organizations. They cannot have offices where they congregate. They cannot erect community centers. They cannot provide uh, 
services for people living with HIV, for example, in the country, uh, who may not be able to access uh, government uh, protection or who may be criminalized for their health status. So all of this goes to show that while activism exists and it is underground and it is through secure anonymous channels, um, mostly digitally, the complete lack of environment to allow these voices to be amplified is the problem. They mm. operate under incredibly restrictive conditions. They cannot um, even extend support to other members of the community that they would want to assemble with. They cannot hold protests. They cannot publish articles about their experiences. Every individual that we interviewed has to be completely anonymous with no information leading to their identity in any way, even if it's substantial evidence, because they are so afraid of the government reaction. So this climate means that no, civil society cannot flourish in a country like Qatar. Activism cannot be visible in a country like Qatar. So do you think like some of these, like the efforts, like the rainbow armbands or the rainbow flags or other things, I like, sort of miss like totally miss the reality that exists there is like in, in some ways like um, that sort of activism can make more of a difference in a country where there is that opportunity for like assembly and for like the, this is the part that's not fully formulated in my head but it seems like there's a real disconnect there of like coming in with this rainbow armband might be helpful in a climate that allows for some sort of rallying around that and people to have more of a voice because of that. But it's it's like in this case, like a gesture like that creates no voice and that's where it falls short because really the, the limiting factors for LGBTQ people to have a voice, like those exist at this really political level. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, when we look at the rights of LGBT people in any context, it's usually the forefront of oppression and condemnation. The abuses against LGBT people and LGBT people's rights in general are frequently scapegoated, including in the West, by governments such as Hungary, Poland, the United States in many ways, where LGBT rights are the very last priority on the list of human rights protections or political um, engagement for that matter. So. While the rainbow flag is an international symbol that means a lot to a lot of people and allows you to express solidarity uh, by waving the symbol, it may not apply in the same way that it is empowering to um, people in Europe, for example, to Qatari individuals. They may not care about the rainbow flag as their symbol. It could really be the Qatari flag. It could be, um, you know, their own lived experiences and their um, lack of access to economic opportunities, their lack of access to employment, their lack of access to healthcare. You know, those indicators are so much more important to emphasize because when we're talking about LGBT rights, we are not talking about the pride of waving a rainbow flag. We are talking about basic rights, the right to health, the right to employment, the right to uh, freedom from discrimination, the right to mobility. Queer women in Qatar cannot rent hotel rooms without a male guardian's permission. They cannot travel without a male guardian's permission. They are restricted not only by criminalization, but also by male guardianship laws that demote the status of women in general, including queer women, to secondary citizens. Yeah, and I think I'd like to kind of dive into the, you know, the, the that side of things as well, because, you know, when we look at football across the world, you know, um, women's football in the Middle East is one of the most up-and-coming, you know, building um, areas and it's fantastic but yet so many women and we, we'll stick with Qatar here you know are second class citizen, citizens and you know 
I think we need to start to challenge that macho image of, you know, football is for boys. And I'm wondering, like, would would the act of bringing women into um, their involvement in the World Cup and LGBTQ women in involvement in the World Cup, where they're being seen and their voices being heard, where they can talk about their real lived experience, would that be one of the the best uses of this platform now having the World Cup in Qatar? Yeah, absolutely. To show how women's participation and engagement in mega sporting events is as vital as men's is a statement that the whole world should hear, not just in Qatar. You know, in Iran, Mm -hmm. women could not sit in football stadiums to watch the games until very recently because they were banned from watching football. So the extent to which states go to deny women's existence in these events and their role in these mega sporting events, as well as, you know, other um, companies and um, associations that prioritize the visibility of men in those events. This needs to be changed systematically and to start with highlighting and amplifying the voices of women who are already engaged, who are already, you know, whether it be behind the scenes or players or um, running the, the entire game. It's important to take away this toxic masculinity from the game of football and include diversity, really, in visibility around the game. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa, he does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable, they're every week after the Premier League match week so make sure you listen to everything we're doing on epl index and follow us there on twitter at epl index thank you bye-bye yeah it's so important and you know this is a a liverpool based podcast and our manager jorgen klopp was recently asked questions around whether he was going to watch the world cup and you know what he felt were his responsibilities and uh, he was kind of putting it back on the journalists and saying, well, what's your responsibilities as well? You know, like we all have responsibility, but he was kind of talking a little bit about how we need to not demonize the players for going and playing in the World Cup um, and how we, well, he, he was kind of saying we should have been talking about this when it was announced and people weren't talking about it um, as as vociferously as as they are now. Um, but do you think he has a point, or you know, do the do the players actually have to have a responsibility to you know boycott? If there's no players, there's no World Cup. If there's no fans, there's no World Cup. Well, there there could be because I'm sure. The, the Qatari local government will find ways of filling the stadiums to make it look like there's tons and tons of people there. But if there's no players or if, if, if significantly high profile players were to take a stand instead of wearing a um, rainbow laces or a rainbow armband and say, I'm not going. And this is why I'm not going. I'm not going because of the way the LGBTQ community are, are treated. I'm not going because of the way women are treated. I'm not going because of the religious beliefs and the restrictions that are there for people and how this society is not an inclusive society. So I'm refusing to go. Like, is there that responsibility there that they could and probably should be maybe taking a stand with? Just one comment on religion. Really, religion is not the issue here. It's not religious mm-hmm. beliefs that 
deter the acceptance of human rights, whether it be Christianity or Islam or any other religious belief. Um, it is an excuse that governments always employ. You know, we are a Muslim country, you have to respect our religion, as though the religion is calling for torture and ill-treatment of LGBT people, which it never has. So mm -hmm. that's one point. And on the players, you know, some players have taken stances and have said that they will not participate or they will um, use their platform to highlight the human rights abuses or they will refuse to play in stadiums where migrant workers have died to build them, where their wages have been stolen from them, uh, where they were not returned to their families um, because of um, sponsorship and just complete abusive kafala systems that uh, Qatari authorities maintain. but. The onus, again, is not on individuals, really. When we piecemeal this issue and make it an individual responsibility, it takes away from the structural nature of these abuses and this repression. It is FIFA's responsibility to make sure that it will not subject the players to this type of choice to begin with. It is up to each individual to decide whether they want to participate in their personal capacity. But just as you said, if the Qatari authorities are able to fill the stadiums with, um, you know, uh, the appearance of an audience or, or more people, football associations can also replace players. It's not really an individual's responsibility to compromise their own, um, you know, career or whatever it is for the sake of the failure of the governing system, which in this case is FIFA and Qatari authorities, who have completely failed to protect players, fans, residents, or anyone for that matter during and in the buildup of the World Cup. So while it's important to take stances like these, while it is necessary to express condemnation and refusal to participate, it remains again symbolic and it should not have been the primary focus, the primary focus should really have been on FIFA and how FIFA has completely failed its human rights obligations, how it completely failed the LGBT rights test in the country, how it has failed thousands of people and players and has turned this game, this beautiful game, into a World Cup of shame, really. That's so powerful. Yeah, it is really powerful. And like, I, I'm wondering, you know, like how that extends then maybe in your thinking to sort of the average fan and their decision, like, can I engage with this World Cup? Should I engage with this World Cup? Like, is it more ethical for me to not watch? Is it more ethical for me to watch? Does that bring increased attention? Like, you know, I think, what does this mean for, for the average fan? Again, it's, up to each individual to practice their resistance in ways that make sense to them. If people feel like watching the World Cup is being complicit with um, the abuses that have taken place to create this World Cup, then by all means don't watch the World Cup. But if there are other ways that people can actually show um, productive solidarity maybe by participating and using the platform while they're there, maybe by, um, you know, creating some sort of initiative or coalition that can extend some longevity to the solidarity for LGBT residents of Qatar or other vulnerable groups, um, you know, while it is, while it could be amplifying the voices of people who are most affected during the World Cup, it's a matter of Again, free expression, it's a matter of being as strategic as possible, but to take, I'm not going to be watching the World Cup. I'm definitely not going to be engaging in anything related to the World Cup or entering Qatar for that matter. So it is really, it goes down to what am I contributing? What is my contribution to these human rights abuses if I were to participate? If I am consuming uh, anything in Qatar because of contributing to the Qatari economy, am I complicit? Am I not? Am I, if I, you know, post on social media and glorify the World Cup, am I complicit or am I just enjoying the game? So this it becomes a question of, of 
where is my role, what is my positionality, and where can I be most effective? Yeah, and that, you know, even that kind of strikes with me. You know, myself and my wife have decided we're not going to watch the World Cup, and you know, it's it's something that me and my wife and my children have always enjoyed sitting down together and and watching the World Cup. My children love um, the, the World Cup, but we're we're speaking to them about these are the reasons why and making them aware. Now, my children are teenagers, so <laughs> I'm not sitting down with my five-year-old and explaining <laughs> about the, the challenges, but um, they are teenagers and they're very much aware of, of the, the, the abuses that are, are experienced by the, the local Qataris. Um, and I think it, that's why we were hoping to use the Anfield Index platform to you know, start to get people to just think about it and look at and ask yourself the question, can you sit and watch it and support it? And it's not about casting judgment on those who do. It is just saying, just think about this is the the the, the impact of what's happening in the area for those who are being discriminated against. And if people were listening to this and they're saying to themselves, right, we want to take some sort of action and for it not to be piecemeal, for it not to be individual based, are there places that people can go? You know, do we, do they get in touch with your, your organization, the likes of Outright International, those types of organizations to see what is being planned, if anything, that they can start to support and, and acknowledge? Yeah, I mean, my plan is to continue monitoring the situation of LGBT people in Qatar after the World Cup. My plan is to continue the pressure, to continue um, the advocacy, to continue the research and documentation so that Qatari authorities can no longer deny that these abuses are taking place. They cannot claim that security forces are just a few bad apples perpetrating these abuses to really acknowledge that this issue is systematic and requires international attention. And what people can do is continue to amplify those um, this documentation, to continue to participate in you know, figuring out ways that they can extend support if people actually want their support to LGBT residents of Qatar, or really in many ways to just stay away from um, having to expose people or interview people. So for many journalists, I would say, you know, do not try to go to Qatar and interview LGBT people because any association with foreign journalists could put people at risk. To really prioritize people's safety before making any gesture or initiative because it's not about making ourselves feel better about our complicity or our role. It's really about are we serving these communities in a responsible way? Are they asking us to serve them or are they asking us to leave them alone? That's so important. Absolutely. I'm delighted you made that point. It's so, so important. Andrew, have you a question there? Yeah. Did you want to jump in? So, Raja, I'd be really curious, like, just in terms of, you know, you followed this region and LGBT rights in this region before the World Cup, you're going to continue to follow it after. What's your level of optimism or hope or feeling about whether or not this will make any meaningful change at all or do you think likely not for better or for worse like yeah what i guess that's the question i don't have a good ending to it you know i'm asked about impact in my job all the time um you know what is the impact of the yeah. project what impact do we seek to make and most of the time impact is uh, talking about legislative change, repealing laws, uh, introducing policies by governments, which uh, is not something I'm optimistic about in the near future in the region. Maybe in some places in the region, there are some efforts to make LGBT rights part and parcel of the fight for freedoms in general, to make the fight intersectional enough that when we are talking about human rights, we are never leaving out LGBT people. And that is the power of documentation and visibility in the sense that we are not trying to visibilize individual stories to put them in any way at risk. We are trying to show the world that there's a record, that this is actually happening. And from there, 
this could inform many initiatives. It could inform asylum cases for people who need to get out of the region or their country due to fear of persecution. They can point to this evidence-based research and say, this is what happens in my country. This is why I need safe haven. This is why I need to be um, moved to another place, whether it be in the region or, or, or around the world. People usually don't have access to, to these services or asylum or, or refuge, for that matter, on the basis of them being queer or transgender. So this documentation really helps move the needle on these types of programs that would then start to consider LGBT people as victims of violence and discrimination, just like you know other people could be vulnerable to the same uh, violence or discrimination. In other ways, it could condition funding for security forces on um, the basis of their human rights record and abuses against LGBT people. It could help fund shelters for LGBT people in places like Iraq, which we have been able to secure, um, where people are being killed for being gay on a daily basis by armed groups. It could help get someone out of prison because authorities are realizing that someone is paying attention, someone is, is watching, someone is holding us accountable. Maybe in some states such as Qatar where they care about their international reputation, this will actually help advance individual lives. So I'm not talking, I'm not optimistic about systemic uh, change at this point, but I am optimistic that research and advocacy could change individual lives in ways that would not be possible without documentation. Yeah, and I think, you know, with any systemic change, it's always the last thing to change. So there's usually social right. acceptance before that, and then the systemic change comes. So even the work that you guys are doing and, and all the, the, the groups that are supporting people in this area, it's important work now for the future in 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years time. It is essential for it to be done now in order to pave that path for a future where there is that systemic change, where the governments have no choice but to listen to the, the, the society and the people in, in the population and actually make the changes that they want. So it's... Yeah, I mean, we can talk about, we can talk about women's rights. Mm -hmm. You know, the women's rights movement has been um, triumphant and incredible since our existence. And only recently have women received basic rights in many parts of the world. In some parts of the world, they still do not have access to basic rights or freedom of, of choosing what to do with their bodies or access to sexual and reproductive health care. But at least in the public record, governments can no longer say, we do not acknowledge women's rights. It is just shameful to do so. It is no government in the world is coming and saying, women are secondary citizens and we do not acknowledge them. It is state practices that affirm that, but the discourse is so important. So getting the region and these governments to a level where it is not okay to deny LGBT people's rights in any way anymore, whether it be in discourse or practice, is something we can really borrow from the women's rights movement to show how longevity and years and years of strategy and an intersectional framework is the way for us to be able to advance people's rights, whether it be 10 years from now, 15 years from now, or tomorrow. And have you had any backlash to your article? Have I had any backlash? Um, yes. So aside from, you know, threats, to myself, it's been mostly denial um, by the Qatari authorities. It's been undermining uh, the credibility of the organization, uh, claiming that all of this evidence is false and fabricated, um, and maybe severing some ties of engagement with the with the Qatari authorities because we had sent them a letter, um, you know, showing them our findings and asking them a list of questions. And, you know, while we are optimistic that we will receive a response, we have still not received a response from them. So it seems that they are unwilling to engage on the rights of LGBT people. And that 
has to change for us to be able to push for real change. Mm-hmm. Well, Rasha, I'm conscious that you're, you're, you're time and we really, really appreciate you taking the the time out of your day to come and talk to us about this. It's been a fascinating conversation. You've brought so much to the table. And I suppose, where can people find you or find more information about the LGBT community in Qatar? So you can go to our website, hrw.org slash LGBT rights. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Russia underscore underscore Yunus or any social media platform. And I'm happy, of course, to engage with anyone who wants to express support or um, defend um, the rights of LGBT people, whether it be in Qatar, in the region or around the world. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. And I hope the listeners found this enlightening um, and hopefully maybe motivating to get involved and to see what we can all individually do to help any community around the world, but especially the LGBT community, because as you said, it is one of the easier, in inverted commas, communities to, or more accepted to put down. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for your time as well and your contribution. And um, Rasha, we will share your information with the podcast. Subscribers, thank you so much for tuning in. Please do let us know what you think and offer support and acknowledgements to Russia and everyone that she works with. So thank you so much. Until next time, take care of yourselves. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.